Dr. Washington graduated from Northeastern 16 years ago and was the first black woman to be admitted into her medical residency program. She's an accomplished general surgeon, advocate, and mentor, hoping to bring more diversity to the field. Hi, Dr. Washington. Welcome to the Northeastern Next podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So you received your undergrad degree in biochemistry from Northeastern, and now you're a surgeon. And on top of a busy medical schedule, I know you're running from the hospital today, you host a podcast with your sisters called The Doctors Washington Podcast. So let's start from the beginning. When you were at Northeastern, did you know you wanted to become a doctor and what inspired this career path for you? Sure. When I started at Northeastern, I actually had no idea what I wanted to do. So I intentionally chose a large university because it gave me the option to kind of see what it was out there, like what things challenged me and what things would keep me interested in my everyday career um, for decades to come. And so that's what drove me to attend Northeastern because it was one of the largest schools that I applied to. And um, the curriculum that was offered was pretty broad. And so I I figured I could get a good experience with whatever. I didn't really have an idea. I can remember being, I don't know, high school or middle school and wanting to be an archaeologist. I remember that. (laughs) You know, I was like, I'm going to go to Egypt and dig around in the dirt and find things that no one knew existed. And I actually tried to do the exchange program that Northeastern had at the time with the American University in Cairo, but there was a lot of unrest in the Egypt area in the early 2000s. And so that created somewhat of a problem. So maybe I wouldn't have become a doctor if I actually (laughs) made it there. (laughs) So I don't know. But yeah, so that being there at Northeastern, I took a lot of courses on different things, political science, law, engineering, and sciences like health science or uh, biologic sciences. And honestly, most of the courses that I took in other areas didn't really challenge me. Like I didn't have to really study as hard or do as much in order to get the grades I wanted. But the, the biologic sciences really challenged me. Like I struggled a bit to perform well in those and I wanted that challenge. And then I worked as like a side job at Brigham and Women's Hospital right up the road for about a year or so on their high risk OB floor. And that was just, I just got that job because I had a friend whose mom had a connection there and I needed to support my retail habits. So (laughs) (laughs) I went for it. And in that experience, You know, in addition to those biologic sciences and that, you know, challenge that I got there, all those things put together created an interest in medicine. And so it was more of an experience in ruling out things that led me into medicine more so than I always wanted to be a doctor or something like that. That just wasn't my path. I I love that. I think I remember back in my undergrad days and any of the students that were, I was good at science in high school. And so they go pre-med and a lot of those people did not end up pre-med in in a year. And so I love hearing, you know, that's the point of undergrad is to try things out. And it's, I think it's tells something that you went after the most challenging. It kind of speaks to your ambition and where you are today for sure. And so, right. and I, I think about Northeastern, it's all about experiential learning and your major didn't require a co-op, but you almost found your own co-op by having your, your side job. So 
Tell me a little bit about your other involvements at Northeastern and how they impacted you. Sure. I, my, um, and I don't know how it is now because I haven't kept up with what's going on at Northeastern as much, but biochemistry didn't require a co-op, um, as you explained. And I didn't do that extra year, mainly because the biochemistry co-ops were usually lab-based. And I knew that that wasn't my interest to be in a lab and that sort of thing. So I never, I never sought that out. And then I was, I was told, I had to ask, <laughs> but I was told that I didn't have to do that year and I could, I could finish earlier, which, which really was interesting to me because, especially once I decided that medicine was my path, because I knew that this would be a longer journey. And so, you know, one thing you can't get back in life is time. And so I figured that in that regard, even though it was short in my undergrad experience, I had more experiences left. <laughs> so I took the route of not doing co-op. In addition, though, I was really involved on the, on the campus of the university um, with various different student organizations and that sort of thing. So um, I was asked to be on a committee, and I'm not sure if the current president does this, but the president at the time had a committee of African-American students where uh, there was about seven or eight of us that met with him every couple of months in a meeting to just discuss things that matter to us on the campus. And I thought that was great. He had a similar group for Hispanic students, a similar group for um, Asian-American students, and he was willing to listen. And some changes were made from that group, but I figured that his willingness, particularly at that time, obviously now there's a lot of discussion around race and that sort of things, but this was nearly 20 years ago. So that just wasn't on the forefront of people's minds at that time. And so I will give him that for creating those groups, whether it was his idea or someone else's. And so we came to him and discussed some of the issues that we had in particular. Um, the African-American Institute was a big um, piece of discussion because we had our own building at that time, and but they were planning to build a housing facility in that area, and so which meant that the African American Institute had to be relocated, and that happened after I left the actual relocation and building of that facility. But there was a lot of discussion around that because we had events in that building. Um, we didn't have issues with people complaining of noise because it was a standalone building. And I believe, if I remember correctly, they were planning to put the African-American Institute inside of this housing building on the bottom floors, which could create a noise problem. <laughs> and so we didn't want to be restricted in what we, what events we could have or the timing in which we could have them because of how they were changing things. And so that created some, some uh, points of discussion. Mm -hmm. So I was really involved in that for the last about three years of being at Northeastern. And interestingly enough, the president of the university wrote one of my letters of recommendation for medical school. Wow. So that connection ended up being, you know, beneficial for me as well. I was also involved in the Black Student Association um, and some of the executive positions there. And we did various events. And one in particular that I really enjoyed was a celebration of the African diaspora that we did in the African American Institute when it was its own building. Mm -hmm. And each floor, there was about four, I think there was three or four floors to the building. Each floor was a specific cultural experience. And we invited the entire campus. There were hundreds of people who showed up. We got quite a bit of funding. So there was foods from all over 
um, the African diaspora. And that was really, really great. We really had a good time. There were, there was an African dance group that, you know, taught people how to do certain little moves. And so it was, it was very interactive and, and it gave people an experience of being an African-American Institute who normally wouldn't walk through the doors. Also was involved um, by starting the NAACP chapter at the university, which was really good and very timely as about my third year there, I believe we had an uh, episode on the campus where someone wrote a kind of a racially charged word on a student's a dorm room door or painted it there. And so we, in response to that, um, myself and the rest of our executive council put on an event, which was a hate crimes forum. And it brought together, obviously this was, you know, 20 years pre-COVID. So this was in person. We flew in uh, four or five kind of major people nationwide who were dealing with hate crimes. And it was standing room only, you know, for this event. And it was really educational, really good. And I really enjoyed putting it together. So that was one of the things there. So very active on the campus in things that maybe weren't necessarily related to medicine or healthcare. I was never involved in a pre-med group. I actually don't (laughs) even know if there was one that existed, but I did have a pre-med counselor and et cetera in order to help me get towards where I wanted to go. So those those were some of the things, I guess that's a long description, but (laughs) some of the things that I um, was involved in on the campus. Yeah, that's amazing. I love hearing that because like you're saying, this is the early 2000s. And I think it was a couple years ago when the John D. O'Brien African American Institute, I know everyone calls it the Institute for short, celebrated its 50th anniversary. And I remember it was so many events on campus, kind of like speaking to what you're saying is bringing everybody into it because it's such a pillar of the university and everybody knows about the Institute and its impact. And so it's really cool to hear from your perspective on, you know, what it was like then and how a lot of those conversations it's changed. Some haven't changed and some are. And it's like, the more we Mm -hmm. have to keep talking about things and getting the students involved is just really, really cool. And so especially like that's just, it is more about than the academics. I think every student has that student life experience that shapes where you're going and it shapes of who you are. So when you graduated, where did you go next? I will be honest that my medical knowledge exists within the show Grey's Anatomy. And I'd love for you to break down your career path and kind of how you got where you are today. <laughs> well, I'll tell you that it's not very much like Grey's Anatomy. There's no <laughs> Dr. McDreamy or Dr. McSteamy. They don't exist, unfortunately. <laughs> so, uh, but so after I left Northeastern, I started medical school at University of Tennessee in Memphis. I'm from Mississippi, if you can't tell from my accent. So I went pretty far away to get to Northeastern for college and ran back pretty quickly afterwards. (laughs) The cold weather up there was not for me. So went to University of Tennessee in Memphis for um, medical school. That was a four-year process and where the first couple of years are kind of like uh, classroom-based and the last two years are more of a clinical experience. So you rotate on various basic um, medical specialties. So medicine, PEDS, OB, surgery, that sort of thing. And when I was on my surgery rotation, which I had a poor, a really bad lottery number. So I ended up having to do surgery first, which is one of those things. But 
I enjoyed it. And surprisingly enough, actually, I went into medical school hoping to do infectious disease. I was going to find the cure to AIDS. So that even more like ages me. But <laughs> a different right infectious now, disease. Like we don't even talk about HIV anymore. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so I wanted to do that. And I started the surgery rotation, really enjoyed it. It was very hands-on. It was, it was team-based. I enjoyed that. But then I had to do all the other rotations after it. And I enjoyed all of them with the exception of OB and neurology. Those were the two that I just, it was, it was clearly not for me. You know, I enjoyed medicine. My attendings on medicine who was teaching our group of medical students was, they were very, um, they encouraged us to learn. And so it was interesting to me. And then I enjoy peas. The kids are really cute. The parents were not, but the kids are <laughs> really cute. And, um, and so, I mean, there was, I, I actually enjoyed psych. I thought it was really unique. It was a unique area of medicine that was completely different from everything else. So I, I enjoyed a lot of them, but the one that, you know, I would wake up in the morning and actually want to do was surgery. So that's why I ended up there. So four years in medical school, and then I stayed in Memphis at University of Tennessee for my residency. Surgery residency was five years long. And when I say long, I mean long. And um, it's a lot of hours to work. You know, you spend more time with those group of people than you spend with anyone else in your, you know, during those five years. And it was a tough program. It was very old school, very traditional type of program. And so I was the first Black female to be admitted into that program um, in 2009. And so first to complete, obviously. Um, And then after that, I took a job as a general surgeon in Arlington, Texas, uh, private practice, and um, was there with, I had one partner in that practice who had the practice by himself prior to me coming for about eight years. And then I joined him. And that was really good. It was really educational. And it's, it was a huge adjustment to be the boss um, after you had been in a training experience for so long. So I did that for six years. And then <laughs> I call it having a midlife crisis. <laughs> I, um, I decided to go back into training to do um, hepatopancreatic biliary surgery. It was something I was interested in in residency, but kind of found that interest very late, that process to go into fellowship and do specialized training takes a bit of time. And I was about six months from graduating my residency when I realized that I had those interests. So I went ahead and started my job and thought that I would be fine and ultimately was not. And so (laughs) decided to go back into training, which led me to Portland, Oregon, which is where I am now in HPV surgery fellowship here at Oregon Health and Science University. Wow. Um, the fellowship is two years long. I'm about nine months-ish into it. And it's been an adjustment because, again, I was the boss for six years and now I'm training again. But it's a bit of a step back in order to make a pretty big step forward. So it's it should be a good process. But that is the last 20-ish years of my life. <laughs> wow. I mean, that's probably really already good advice for someone who's going into medicine that it's never too late to start the training process again. I can imagine you right. learned so much as 
a boss in a private practice where you have to take on a lot more than just the medicine. It's, um, you know, the business of it and, and, and being in sure. charge and then going back to kind of the training and the nitty gritty. And I don't even remember what the specialty was. I had a very long name, <laughs> but yeah. I think it's, we need people like you to, to be in that science field. It's, it's very impressive. And I know to me, surgery seems to be one of the most competitive and intense specialties. I have a few friends in the medical field from pediatrics to anesthesiology, and they've shared with me that even though they're all medical paths, they can be so different from work-life balance to how many years of training that you're doing and, you know, where you get to the top um, if that's the goal. So to put it, you know, simply like what advice would you have for a medical student who's thinking about surgery? Like if you went back to yourself, you know, picking that field, like what are some of those considerations besides maybe just the long hours? Yeah, I think surgery is, it's different. It's definitely a unique field because there are a lot of changes that are happening in medicine, many of which will take generations to to affect surgery. And so your relevance ends up being, you know, you, you're not put in question, your relevance isn't put in question. So what I mean by that is in a lot of the medical specialties, They've been recruiting nurse practitioners and in order to fill in some of those spots. And they've been giving nurse practitioners a lot more authority to do different things. Um, unfortunately, surgery isn't like that. Well, not unfortunately, but um, fortunately for me, uh, surgery isn't like that. So we won't be replaced by mid-levels. Only we will take the risk of operating on someone. And, and so that that creates a career path that has some security. And so I would, I would throw that in there as, you know, this is definitely job security. You won't be replaced by a mid-level provider or by, I don't know, in the future, a robot. You know, it's <laughs> not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So, but I would, my advice is to just make sure that this is something you want to do. A lot of people go into surgery because of how it sounds, you know, like the prestige and like the great anatomy maybe (laughs) yeah of like being able to say that I'm a surgeon but it's a lot of your time and a lot of your commitment and you really have to enjoy what you're doing and I tell medical students I mentor quite a few medical students um, at a couple of different um, universities and I tell them all the time to really take a step back and really think after you're you've done your rotations like what what would you enjoy doing so much that there are other personal important things in your life that you wouldn't mind missing in order to do this? Mm-hmm. Because that's that's sort of the the choices that you have to make sometimes. And so you have to find whatever it is that you just love to do that much. And we are fortunate because most of the world really doesn't have that option to say, I want to do this and this is what I love. And so I'm going to do it. Most of the time we don't in the in the rest of the world, you do what you can do in order to support your families. We actually can choose. And so with that power to choose comes the responsibility to choose well. And so that's what I would encourage people to do. And then, like you said, or like you alluded to earlier, if you make those decisions and you realize that's not really what I want to do, change. Like, don't be dissatisfied in your life. Like your family will will be able to tell when you're not happy mm-hmm. at work. And so make your entire life, your entire sphere happy as much as you can. It won't be that way every day, mm-hmm. but as much as you can, make your entire sphere happy 
because when you're unhappy at work, you'll be unhappy at home. And there's no reason why your spouse, your children should have difficult times because you've chosen poorly. And so, so I would, I would encourage a medical student to do that. Just really think about it. Take the time you need in order to make the decision. And then if you decided wrong, you know, sit down your ego and go back and do the right thing. Mm -hmm. That is so wise. I think anyone can relate to that in any field that you have to, it might change what makes you happy over time. And you might have to, Mm -hmm. there's so, I feel like such a trend of that kind of mid-career switch for people and Mm -hmm. they might try something totally new. And that's honestly a theme on this podcast where I love hearing these non-linear career paths. Sometimes Mm -hmm. they seem like they're linear, like, okay, this is what I majored in. This is where I'm going. And then there's a little bit of switch or life happens and throws a curveball. So I know you talked about being the first black woman to enter and finish that medical program. And I would really like to acknowledge and explore your experience as a black woman in medicine. And, you know, I'm in the business world and we know that a number of women, especially women of color at the top, and there are fewer in the CEO positions. And I'd really like to hear your perspective in medicine because I'm not that familiar. So is there diversity in the OR? Yeah. So I would say that, um, unfortunately, the statistics show that the percentage of physicians who are African-American nationwide hasn't changed in about 70 years. And so that obviously is of concern because the population should, you know, every, every area, not just medicine, but business, you know, law, everything should represent your population. So there shouldn't be one thing that's offset versus another. The same thing throughout your leadership positions, it should, it should represent the population. And so, especially for something like medicine, where every person will interact with the medical field, like you cannot live your entire life without interacting with us, you know, like you will need us at some point in life. And so that also we should, our numbers should represent the racial and ethnic background of our nation. And we've had more than enough time in order to make that happen. So the question, the question is, why hasn't it? And what can we do now that, particularly now that this is something that's on the forefront of everyone's mind, in order to make that change? So in, in the surgical field, I'll say, um, I can't speak for medicine or peds or anything like that. I don't know very much about that. But in the surgical field, there are some African-American women in particular in the field, it is still not as representative as it should be in the field. And there's varying reasons for that. The more obvious reasons being race related, but then there's also issues with lifestyle, which you briefly mentioned as well. And it's difficult for the training process to have a family and that sort of thing while you're doing this. And it's important to have that support that you need in order to get through the process. But that's that's a minor detail, I would say, in increasing diversity within the surgical field. And it's it's getting there. It's just a slow process. So remember I described a 20-year process. Like that's that's how long it takes to get one person through this. And so if you're trying to make a a change in demographics amongst your entire community, it could take a hundred years, you know, once things start to change. And so I think we're getting there, particularly now that there are more African-American women that you see nationwide who are in the field. And that means that there's more African-American women who are 
apply in the medical school and have mentors who actually look like them um, and how that representation actually matters. So those, those sorts of things are slowly coming through the pipeline. Unfortunately, there are some changes within academic medicine, which I know we haven't really discussed the difference, but academic medicine is more the people who are at universities who are a part of this teaching process. There's less African-American women and men in academic medicine. And part of that has to do with some of those structurally racist policies and and experiences that people have had in the past. And so they tend to, we tend to avoid academic medicine as a career because of that. And so there's, there's some changes coming along to deal with those things too, particularly with a lot of the diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives that are kind of sweeping the country right now. So over time, some of that will change. Um, but right now we're kind of in that process where it changes and it's just keeping up the momentum with those things because who knows what the next big thing will be. And right now it is DEI initiatives and in, in medical fields and et cetera, but we don't know what that next thing could be that could divert attention. And so we're trying to get as much done as we can right mm -hmm. now, as long as while the, while the attention is set on it. Yeah, that is really important. And it's true. I think you need mentors that look like you and mm -hmm. have that experience, the, the real lived experience, because, right. you know, it's, you can't have someone talking about diversity and inclusion who have race privilege that is not that experience. And, and you can yeah. understand and be an ally in that way, but it's not the same. And I think yeah. it's so rooted in systemic racism that it touches every system, hospitals and medicine. And we, I think oh, over the cool. past year, as we took an even closer look at our world and, you know, we've had not only one human crisis in the COVID-19 pandemic, which you're probably very close to in the medical field, but also systemic racism and people really sure. taking a close look a little too late, but, it, you know, at least it's on the forefront of people's minds right now. So there's a lot to unpack in terms of discrimination and bias um, towards doctors and patient care and have you, you know, faced any of those challenges that you can share? Yeah, I think for for that, obviously everyone has, or, you know, most minorities in fields that tend to be more intense, higher um, acuity, I guess you can say, mm -hmm. those types of fields have experienced something, whether it be macroaggressions or uh, microaggressions. I think we all have had those experiences and have managed them in various ways, uh, whether they are more upfront. I tend to be more direct um, and maybe because of the, the, what do you call it? The stereotype that people have of surgeons. Like mm -hmm. we tend to be uh, very vocal, very direct, matter of fact. And so that's, that's sort of my way of managing those things. And so I don't tend to carry them after it's done because what I've, I've said what I said, you know, so, <laughs> um, and I'm done with it. But I think that the biggest issue with people who face challenges, if for anyone who's listening and trying to figure out how to navigate, the biggest challenge is knowing where your support lies. And I think the, my recommendation for that is to find your allies and find your support upon entry rather than looking for it when something happens. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, it's, it's when you enter that field, it's when you enter your residency, it's when you enter your, your first practice or your fellowship, 
find that ally, find that support system that of people who are rooted at that university or rooted at that practice, not friends and family, but people who actually can have, who can um, speak on your behalf when you're not in that space. Find those people and establish those relationships up front. And then see whether or not those allies are really allies. When, when you know, it hits the fan, as we say, you really will know. And um, then you can make adjustments once that happens. So that's more of a strategy that I would um, recommend, particularly if you're in an environment, which is really any environment, where you could experience something like this. Make sure that there are people who are in your corner, regardless of where you are. Mm-hmm. I guess speaking of, you know, people in your corner, I'd love to talk a little bit about your podcast. And I'd assume our conversation here is a little bit of a preview of what listeners would get when they tune in to The Doctors Washington. So doctors is plural in the title. So are your sisters also doctors? And, you know, why did you type the show together? Right. Yeah. So I do have two sisters. I'm the middle (laughs) child with all of the middle child characteristics. I've got them all. But... um, (laughs) I, my older sister is five years older. My younger sister is seven years younger. We are all physicians. My older sister is med-peds, which is internal medicine and pediatric. And then my younger sister is a nephrologist. So her specialty is in management of kidney disease. So patients on dialysis, that sort of thing. And we decided to start this podcast because we really, again, it was that representation piece. Like we wanted you know, African-American females and males who were pre-med to see that there are various people who have done this and who have gone down this path and have succeeded despite any challenges that we may have faced, which we all did. And we made it and we can encourage others to pursue those same things. Basically on our podcast is separated into kind of three segments. The first segment we call the story and that tells you more about us Mm -hmm. and about our family our background i mentioned before we grew up in mississippi and so we are descendants of slaves and we are we're not ashamed of that we don't you know step away from that that is our history that is our our um, heritage and and that comes with its own specific things and so we explore some of those things by talking through some of our, um, like our, my grandfather, who was a huge uh, pillar of our family when he was alive, as well as his brother, who was, you know, very educationally inclined and um, was actually the first African-American to obtain a PhD in the state of Mississippi. Wow. And so we go through some of that history to tell you what leads us up to where we are today. And hopefully it's, you know, this is, this podcast and the people we affect can be our legacy. Second, our second portion um, is called The Plug. And it is basically where we discuss how to get to where we are. Whether that is from a college student perspective, we talk about high school students, what you should be thinking about. We talk about medical students um, and kind of what things they should be thinking about. Even early practice physicians, what things um, should matter. And then we have a third segment called The Focus, and that is more medically related. So we deal with specific medical topics. So we have a COVID, a couple COVID episodes. We have episodes on things like strokes and, um, you know, uh, mental health and that sort of thing. 
On those, we typically will bring in African-American physicians in our community who are doing this every day. We're not, you know, none of us do neurology. So to talk about strokes is a little outside of our, our field of expertise. The same with Parkinson's disease, which we recently did a, um, an episode on. So we brought in a neurologist who manages Parkinson's to give us more of an understanding. But it, it shows you there are African-American physicians who do all these things mm-hmm. in the area. And it's a small community. So a lot of us know each other, you know, and, and it's a way to get, get those faces out there as well. So that's the general gist. I would definitely put in a plug for our February 2021 podcast session because we did about 20 or so episodes that were short, about five to six minutes on uh, African-Americans who made an impact in the field of medicine over the last couple hundred years. And so there's a, a lot to learn there as far as the history of our contribution into modern medicine. So those are quick little ones that you can kind of listen to as you're going for a run or on your Peloton. Mm-hmm. So that's great. And that I think I, I looked through your podcast. I was kind of in celebration of Black History Month in February. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's so great to hear. And I, I love what you're doing with the show because it's so beyond the medicine. It's the storytelling. It's where you're coming from, literally putting the faces out there and, and, ha- and having guests on your show. And so I will definitely plug that in our show news of this episode so people know exactly where to find it. But I just want to thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Washington. And, you know, I'm sure you had a lot of busy, important things to do. So I really appreciate you, you know, talking with me today and sharing your story. Oh, thank you. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks for listening. This is Megan Kirkbrisson, and this is actually my last episode hosting the podcast. Soon you will be hearing from new voices in the Office of Alumni Relations. Stay tuned for what's next.